Howdy, y'all. Welcome to In The Sticks, a podcast about something, nothing, and everything all at once. Hope you guys had a good week. I just got done cleaning up dog shit from the rug in the bathroom, so that's how my day is going. <laughs> Rosie has seemed to, uh, she seemed to digress a little bit. I don't know what it is, but she has a little bell at the front door, and she has learned to ring it when she wants to go outside to play. But if she needs to take a dump or go pee, it doesn't even cross her mind. She just goes wherever she stands, so we're still working on that, but overall, she's she's a good little pup. Um, she gives Charlie all that she can handle, but she's a lot of fun, so we got a good show for you today. We're going to talk about John Wayne Gacy. You know, I was really hoping that Gacy's parents didn't name him after the Duke, after the John Wayne. You, John Wayne, is this me? And I would like to think that they didn't, because he is a junior. He's named after his father. His father was obviously born well before John Wayne was a thing. Um, But John Wayne Jr. was born uh, 1942, which was actually just a couple years after John Wayne, the Duke, became a big thing. But we're going to talk about John Wayne Gacy Jr., uh, pretty interesting stuff. He's the things that nightmares are made of, to be honest with you. He's creepy. He's the clown killer, uh, which is kind of funny because that really didn't have a lot to do with his persona, um, really overall, or even as a serial killer, but we'll get to that in a little bit. As far as uh, an update on the house, we um, I can't really remember where I left off last time, but essentially, you know, our, our appraisal came in way under what we felt our land was worth. It came in at basically half of what we paid for it six months ago in June, seven months ago. So uh, we disputed it and they didn't budge. And so we sent them all of our uh, paperwork from when we purchased the house back in June. They took a couple of weeks <laughs> to look over it and ultimately decided that they were not going to change their appraisal, so we got stuck with their with their dollar amount. They were going to try to do uh, a second contesting of the appraisal, but um, ultimately when we re-ran the numbers, we decided that you know initially we were going to do a one-time close because it was going to save us money in closing costs because we only had to close one time, obviously. But... By doing that, we had to get a higher amount for the loan because we had to have the contingency for the construction loan to make up for any unexpected costs. So when we got that contingency added on to the price of build, it put us into the jumbo loan category. So if we take that contingency off and we do a two-time close, it takes us out of the jumbo loan category and it actually saves us money doing a two-time close. So it looks like that's the route we're going to go. So that might be something to keep in mind if you plan on building. Um, If you cross over a certain threshold, it's about $500,000, you're going to be looking at a jumbo loan, and the jumbo loan ultimately is going to cost you more money in interest and in closing fees and that kind of stuff. So by going back to a two-time close, we got rid of the contingency. It took us out of the jumbo loan category by quite a bit. So I think we're on the right track. We got our permits pulled, uh, so those are ready to go. And we're supposed to be signing the paperwork to close on the loan, and we are tentatively scheduled to break ground Friday. Thank goodness. I hope that doesn't change. Obviously, I'll keep you updated next week, but as of right now, they are supposed to have heavy equipment out here Friday morning to start doing dirt work, and we couldn't be more thrilled. 
And it has been quite interesting, though. It's pretty amazing how subjective that these appraisals can be. Um, when we bought our last house, uh, you know, we, we built in a neighborhood. We built with a builder who owned the lot. And when the appraisal came in at the end of the build, it was like $40,000 under what we paid to build the house. And so we contested it, and they actually sent out a different appraiser who came in. He was still under, but he was only a couple thousand dollars under. But you're talking a difference of, you know, thirty-five dollars to $37,000 difference in the appraisal. So it kind of blows my mind that it's so subjective, and you could really get screwed if you get someone who's having a bad day or maybe who doesn't have experience doing residential neighborhoods when they normally do, you know, acreages or something like that. So... Uh, it's been frustrating to say the least. We've been going round and round with the bank for way too long. You know, we started this process back in November. Uh, we had our plan picked out. We had our plan almost finished by then. We started the loan process with the bank, and lo and behold, here we are, uh, the first week of February, and we still have not closed on the loan, although it looks like we will in the next couple of days. It's just been, it's just been frustrating. So, that's another thing to keep in mind if you plan on building, especially if you plan on building on your own land, is you better prepare for this to take a while because, um, you know, sometimes it, it could run real smooth and you could get to the process in about two months, which is how long it's supposed to take. Um, but it's taken us the best part of three months to, to get this all lined out. So make sure that your timeline is open and you're not in a crunch because things do go wrong, especially when you're building a house and dealing with real estate. So, um yeah, just keep that in mind, but but we're ready to go. Um, like I said, the permits are pulled. The builder's on standby. We just have to sign that paperwork, and we'll get started. So thank goodness for that. Other than that, not a whole lot going on around here. Like I said, Rosie has uh, regressed a little bit in her potty training. Hopefully she gets over that hump pretty quick. And baseball season has started back up, so we're hitting the cages on Wednesday nights. Pretty excited about that. But other than that, we're just focused on building the house and, and getting this party started. Um, obviously, this episode is a day late. You know, I usually post these things uh, at about midnight Monday night so that uh, they're ready for you Tuesday morning. However, yesterday was Monday, and uh, it was such a beautiful day, and I had a very large pile of brush that is right in the middle of where they are supposed to cut the driveway on Friday. So I knew I had to get rid of that. Yesterday there was no wind, beautiful temperatures, really good day to burn. So um, I set the pile on fire and got that knocked out in the morning. And so that brush pile's moved out of the way. We have another big brush pile in the back, but it won't impede the construction work. So we'll just have to deal with that later. I'm going to have to move it to burn it. So rather than move it just to burn it, I'm thinking about just loading it up and taking it to compost and being done with it. Burning it is stinky and messy and hot. Fire's really hot, in case you didn't know. So um, so I'm, I'll probably just load it up on a trailer and take it to compost um, and just and just be done with it. So there's that. Um, that's really the only update I have. So without further ado, I'm going to jump in uh, directly to Mr. John Wayne Gacy Jr. I got my information for this little podcast from a book written by a guy named Barry Boschelli. It's called Johnny and Me. Uh, Barry grew up with Gary uh, in Illinois, in, in Chicago, basically. And they spent a lot of time together all throughout their childhood and their teen years. They knew each other very well. And he wrote a book 
um, about John Wayne Gacy Jr., kind of describing their childhood, what their childhood was like, and what it was like growing up with him. And then I also got a lot of information from a, a student who wrote a thesis uh, in the area of psychobi- psychobiography. His name is Wazel Pieters, uh, and it's called John Wayne Gacy Jr., A Psychobiographical Study. Uh, a lot of, lot of really interesting information in that one. You can look it up on Google Scholar if you're interested, but probably not. It's about 250 pages long, so um, that's another reason that took me a while to get this written because I I sifted through a lot of information. I I do this thing where I start researching these people, and if there's a lot of information out there on them, uh, I go down the rabbit hole, and I like to read about these things because it interests me. So with that, I'll get into it. John Wayne Gacy Jr., the clown killer, he was born on March 17, 1942 in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, you know, in, in his book, Barry, he talks about, like I said, he talks about growing up in Chicago uh, with John Wayne Gacy Jr. And one of the things that he remembers pretty vividly is up there in Chicago, just like what you see in the movie Home Alone, you know, when uh, Kevin goes down to the basement and they have the big coal heater in the basement and it freaks him out and it's like talking to him and laughing at him um, and it really scares him. Well, Barry talks about how he and... Uh, John Jr. both had these coal heaters in their basement. And he talked about how he would have to help shovel coal into the heater, which he didn't mind when his parents were down there, but he hated going down there alone. He also helped his mom with with laundry. You know, they would wash their laundry, and then they would put it in a wringer and hang it out to dry. And Barry knew that John Jr. helped his mom with the laundry, but John's dad, John Sr., he put it into it eventually because he felt that it was sissifying John Jr. He didn't want his boy to be weak, and so he made him stop doing laundry. In fact, he beat him for helping with the laundry. John's dad, uh, from all accounts, especially from Barry's account, he would really get upset if he caught John Jr. doing things around the house that he considered women's housework. Uh, but despite this, John Jr., he liked doing chores growing up. He liked to garden with his mom. He liked to help his mom with the laundry and hang the clothes out on the line outside. Um, you know, Barry talked about how he, t- he he could tell that John Jr. really loved his dad, and he really tried to do things uh, that were more masculine to help impress him. But John's dad was super hard to please. He wanted a tough son, so he would... Basically, he would force his masculinity onto John. Barry felt that John's dad's messaging for Junior, though, was kind of confusing, which really hurt Junior's self-esteem. And as a result of that, Junior, he tried his best to please other people. He tried his best to be likable amongst his siblings, amongst his friends and his classmates. Um, You know, they grew up in a decent neighborhood. They didn't have to worry about locking their doors, even though it was on the outskirts of Chicago. It was considered, it was considered to be a, a pretty safe neighborhood, all things considered. Even though you know Chicago, even at that time, was considered to be a very violent city, uh, the neighborhood that they lived in, they really didn't have those those troubles. They were able to play outside with the other neighborhood kids without any worries. Um, before they got to Chicago, or before they settled in in the neighborhood where he met Barry, John's family moved around quite a bit. Which, if you remember, on the last podcast we talked about you know our serial killers born or bred or I'm sorry born or made and and they talked about how a, a big chunk of serial killers 
moved around a lot as children, and John was no exception to the rule. He moved around a lot when he was a kid until they eventually settled into this neighborhood where Barry lived. Um, When he was moving around, he attended Catholic schools a lot, but when they got settled in, he went to public schools, and that's where he met Barry. The first sign of trouble for John Jr. was when he was about eight years old. Um, He was reportedly undressed and sexually abused by a family friend inside their home. Barry also walked in on John Jr. at a very young age trying on a pair of women's underwear. They didn't say anything to each other at the time. Barry just kind of turned around and walked out of the room, and then they never talked about it after the fact. But it wasn't long after that that John's mom also found a bag of women's underwear underneath the front porch where Junior would play, and so as punishment, she made him walk around the house in women's underwear to embarrass him. Well, his dad found out about this and then, you know, beat the tar out of him when he, when he heard what he was doing with the women's underwear. Uh, when John was about 11 years old, he was playing with uh, his friends and siblings on a swing set in their backyard, and he was standing on the seat of the swing, and he tried to jump off, but the, but he kind of fell off, and the swing came back and hit him in the forehead. It split his head open, and it knocked him unconscious, and he would actually have long-lasting health effects as a result of this accident. His friends and sisters, at the time, they pushed him home on a little wagon that they had made out of roller skates, and he, he actually, when he regained consciousness, he struggled with language. He would mix up his words for weeks after the fact. And, and like I said, he would experience blackouts for years afterwards uh, due to blood clots as a result of the injury. John Jr. got involved in the Boy Scouts, but he really struggled with the structure and the kind of the, um, the hierarchical system that they have. And when he was at Boy Scout camp one year, he got into an argument with another scout, and he ended up just walking away. He left camp, and he was found several hours later dehydrated on the side of the road, and he was no longer allowed to, to, to be a Boy Scout after the fact. And, and that, became, that, that kind of became a, a habit that John Jr. developed. When he would find himself in a situation where he couldn't really cope, he would just leave and disappear for a little bit. As Jr. entered into adolescence, he was well-behaved. Uh, he was an average student. Some would even say he was actually a very good student. But he was known to have severe mood swings. His father continued to abuse him often throughout uh, junior high and high school. And he would not only physically abuse him, but mentally abuse him as well. He would often call him weak and queer. As John got older, became a teenager, he and Barry would often go to the malt shop uh, with their other friends to hang out. And he would even bring girls there on dates. John was not a very healthy uh, adolescent. Um, He had health problems that persisted from, uh, you know, as a young child into his teen years. He had an appendix removed when he was 15 years old, spent a week in the hospital then. He always struggled with his weight, which caused him to develop pretty significant heart issues, and he was put on medications for for those heart issues. And he was hospitalized uh, for a spine injury in 1961. And like I said earlier, he, he suffered... Uh, blackouts from the blood clots that um, were a result of that swing injury that he had as a child. Of course, John's father saw all of the all of these things as a sign of weakness, and he berated him for it. He called him weak. He called him girly. And as John 
entered into young adulthood, um, he actually started to become fairly successful. I'm not sure really how this works, but despite not having, he dropped out of high school, so he didn't have a high school diploma, but nonetheless, uh, he moved out to Las Vegas for a little bit, and when he came back home, he graduated from a business college, and he started working for a company called Nun Bush. It's a shoe company, and he very quickly got promoted to be the manager of one of their outlet stores in Springfield, Illinois. While John was working there, he met his first wife. Her name was Marilyn Myers, and they actually got married in 1964. John was considered to be a a devout husband and Catholic, and he joined the Junior Chamber of Commerce, also known as the JCs. He was very well-liked in that organization. He was seen as very energetic and outgoing. He he was also described kind of as a as a thrill seeker. He got many speeding tickets for driving well over the speed limit, and he was known to join into funeral processions so that he could drive with the procession and not have to pull over and stop and wait for them to pass. After several years working for the shoe company, John's father-in-law, um, who was some big wig at Kentucky Fried Chicken, was offered a job as a store manager. But he told John, you know, you can have the store, you can manage this store, but you got to work your way up from the ground up. So he started out sweeping the floors and doing dishes, and he eventually became a a cook. He worked the counter, and, you know, ultimately he made his way up to the management position. But it was here where there were kind of the first signs of his homosexual tendencies as he, he would really try to befriend the younger male employees in the store, and he would often give them rides home. In fact, it was so obvious that other people started to take notice. John and Marilyn had their first kid, a son, in 1966. Uh, the full kid, the full names of his kids, he actually had a son and a daughter. Their names aren't really known. I mean, their first names are known, but their full names aren't known because they were adopted by their stepfather after John left their life. Uh, when he was arrested the first time. And so, you know, I usually like to look up the next of kin. I like to see what what happened to the kids after their parents were exposed to serial killers, and there's just no information out there uh, for his children. John apparently had his first homosexual experience while Marilyn was pregnant with their first child. Um, He got drunk with one of his friends, and they were playing pool, and at the end of the night, they ended up having oral sex. John quickly rose to the vice president of the local JCs. He often hosted his peers at his house, and he liked to pump his own tires a little bit. He would lie about his past. He would tell stories about being in the Marines and driving an ambulance in Las Vegas, and none of those things were true, but those were uh, two of the stories that he would tell rather consistently in social gatherings throughout his life. He would get really upset and often become irate when people would question the validity of these stories. But it was pretty interesting if the topic of, of homosexuality ever came up in any of these gatherings that he hosted or attended, uh, he would usually be the first one to belittle and demean the group. John Jr.'s first arrest was in 1968. A pair of victims told a grand jury that uh, Gacy had committed sodomy on, on them on two separate occasions. With one of the victims, he he apparently lured the boy to come to his home, and they played pool, they drank beer, and they started to watch pornographic movies. While they were playing pool and drinking, John suggested that the loser of the pool game had to perform oral sex on the winner, 
And when the victim was more or less offended by this, John stated that he was just joking. And so they sat down to watch the movies. And after after the movie was over, uh, John pulled out a knife and allegedly threatened the victim with it and ended up tying him up and strangling him until he went unconscious. The other victim stated that John coerced him into performing oral sex on him twice. John eventually admitted that he did, in fact, have oral sex with this individual, but he said that the victim was a completely willing participant, and uh, it was really just a big experiment in his own sexuality. He was convinced that he was being set up by people in the JCs who did not want him to be the president of their local chapter, and he eventually withdrew his candidacy because he was running for president at the time. Before the trial for the grand jury indictments, John was charged with hiring an 18-year-old to beat up one of the victims to coerce him into not testifying. He couldn't afford the bail, and he had to stay in jail until the trial was completed. Before the trial, John underwent two psychological evaluations, but both doctors found that he was fit to stand trial in both instances. It was during these evaluations that John was described as bisexual because he was physically attracted to men and women, and this was kind of a realization for himself as well. He never would openly admit it, but now it's out in open court, and so many people knew about his bisexuality at this point. After the big pre-trial dance, Gacy entered a plea of guilty to the charge of sodomy, and all the other charges were dropped, and so he officially was convicted of sodomy, and that was on his record from that point forward. At the age of 26, John was sentenced to 10 years confinement in the Iowa State Reformatory for Men. He appealed his sentence, but the appeal was denied. He was apparently a model prisoner. He was well-behaved, and he earned his GED and was paroled in 1970 after serving only 18 months. It's pretty interesting because he was paroled in 1970. If he would have stayed in prison, he would have been in prison until 1979, and all of his murders took place uh, between 1976-ish, 1975 to 1978. So um, who knows what would have happened if he actually had to stay in prison. He got the maximum sentence, but obviously he was paroled early after only 18 months. When John Jr. was convicted and sent to prison, uh, Marilyn filed for a divorce, and the divorce was finalized before he was released. He told his fellow inmates that as far as he was concerned, that entire family, to include his children, were dead to him. Uh, as a result of the settlement, John only got his personal items, and when I say personal items, I mean like his clothes and his toothbrush. Marilyn got everything else. She got the kids, the house, the cars, the furniture, everything. John's dad also died while he was in prison, and he was not able to attend the funeral. He would often visit the gravesite after he got paroled, and he, uh, you know, he apparently regretted never having obtained his father's approval. He moved back in with his mom in Chicago after getting out of prison. He found a job as a chef. Uh, after working there for a few months and living with his mom, he saved up enough money to buy his own house. This house had a trap door in the floor, which led to a crawl space underneath, and that's pretty important later on. He let all the bushes in front of the house along the street and all the shrubs grow up so that you couldn't really see the house from the street. A lot of the neighbors noticed that John was always working in the crawl space of the house. And they, they also noticed a very musty smell that was coming from the house. And, and 
of particular interest was that he was always bringing lime to cover up the smell. He blamed it on a an underground stream that ran underneath the house, and the water was seeping up under the house, which caused the smell. Obviously, we later found out that that was nowhere near the case. Um, but while he was living there, John began dating a woman named Carol Huff. He knew Carol as a child. They kind of grew up together. And after he divorced Marilyn and moved into this house by himself, they got married in 1972. Hoff's mom didn't approve of the union because she felt like John had really bad mood swings and he would fall into these fits of rage and he really and she didn't really appreciate how he treated Carol. Uh, but nonetheless, they got married. They got married and John started hosting these huge parties and the neighbors started noticing that the more parties that John hosted, the more young boys and young male teenagers would show up to them. John started his own company called PDM Contractor, which stood for Painting, Decorating, and Maintenance. And this was pretty interesting because John was not a skilled worker, but he did subcontract most of the work out, and he grew his company to a point where he was earning nearly $300,000 a year. He was known to hire young teenage boys to do a lot of the work despite their lack of experience. He was allegedly uh, very hard on these young teens who worked for him. And the older, more skilled workers got paid more and he treated them a lot better. There was a, there was a pretty busy bus terminal in Chicago, not far from John's house. And this was a, a terminal that many youths would travel through, you know, if they were going from point A to point B to visit family or if they were running away from home. Uh, this was a pretty busy hub, and so John would hang, hang out around this hub and basically hit on these kids as, the, as they got off the bus. And in 1971, John was accused of trying to force a young boy to perform oral sex on him, but the victim... Uh, didn't show up to court, so those charges were dismissed. Uh, the parole board in Iowa never found out about this, and when he had his first parole hearing, he was released from parole because they thought that he was a model citizen. He owned his own business. You know, he had his own house. He'd remarried. Everything was apparently going good, and so they released him from parole, and he was no longer monitored. In 1972, John was arrested again when a, another young man accused him of picking him up while posing as a police officer and then demanding that the boy have sex with him, but the boy was able to jump out of the car and run away. That case also never went to trial. In 1975, John visited a 16-year-old boy at his home, and he brought with him porn, wine, and handcuffs. John actually tricked the boy into putting the handcuffs on, saying that there was a secret way to get them off and urged the boy to try to figure it out. When the boy had appeared to have handcuffed himself, John tried to undress him, but the boy hadn't placed the cuffs all the way on and managed to slip one of them. He wrestled John to the ground and took the key from him. But when he wrestled him to the ground, did he pump his eyes shut? Nope. He kept working for him. In fact, he worked for him for several months after the fact. And what's even creepier is when... When the boy got the handcuffs off, John looked at him and said, you're the first one to get the cuffs off. But like I said, he kept working for John, as creepy as that was, for several months after this particular incident. In 1978, a young man by the name of Jeffrey Rignall was walking down the street in Chicago. John stopped and offered him a little bit of weed. And almost as soon as Jeff got into John's car, John shoved chloroform-soaked rag into his face and 
rendering him unconscious. When Jeff woke up, he was on a couch. He had all his clothes on. And before he knew it, he had a rag over his face again. He went unconscious again. When he woke up the second time, uh, he was completely naked, as was John, standing in front of him. Jeff looked around the room, and he noticed whips, chains, and sex toys all around him. John creepily explained to, to Jeff how he was going to use each of those things on him. And John proceeded to torture Jeff and chloroform him, chloroform him over and over again. When Jeff finally woke up the last time, he was, he was clothed again and he was underneath a statue in Lincoln Park. He managed to find his way to his girlfriend's house, told her what happened. She took him to the hospital and Jeff had to spend six days in the hospital as a result of the assault. Uh, the police were actually skeptical about his story. So he himself spent the next couple of weeks driving around Chicago in the outskirts looking for this car, this black Oldsmobile, that he was tricked into getting into, and he eventually found the car parked in John's driveway. Jeff looked up the property on um, public records and found out that it belonged to John Wayne Gacy Jr. He told the police about him, and they basically said, we'll get to it when we can. So Jeff himself went back to the house to confront John, but John wasn't home. So Jeff waited outside in his car for John to show up. Coincidentally, John showed up about the same time that the police did, but the police weren't able to make an arrest because John actually lived outside of Chicago city limits. They said they didn't have any jurisdiction. Eventually, John was arrested for this crime, uh, but was only charged with battery, and he was forced to pay $3,000 to Jeff in civil court, but that was essentially the only punishment that he got. Now, Carol finally opened her eyes and started to become a little bit suspicious. She was worried about John staying out all night and only getting a couple hours of sleep. And because he was always so tired, his temper was horrible. He would go into to fits of rage at the drop of a dime. And she increasingly found objects that belonged to young men around the house, like underwear and identifications. And then there was the smell. The smell kept getting worse and worse. She also noticed that John had started to bring home pornographic magazines that consisted of only naked men, and so she eventually got sick of all this and she filed for divorce in 1976, but the split was said to have been amicable. Uh, John helped Carol move out into her new home. He even installed carpet in her new home. John and Carol actually remained friends for many years after the fact, and he would often talk to her about his bisexuality, and she continued um, to host us at his parties. And it's believed that Carol was actually the last woman that John ever had sex with. Um, for a brief amount of time after Carol moved out, a young woman did move in with John, but he kicked her out pretty quick and he told the neighbors, uh, you know, this would never work because that woman was a slob. I'm very neat. I can't live with her. So John, after that, he wanted to be the Democratic Committee leader of Norwood Township but when he started showing interest, he was told that he needed more community involvement. So John developed this plan to interact with the community more. And his plan was to start working as Pogo the Clown, hosting children's birthday parties. And that's how he became known as the Killer Clown, because he would dress up as a clown and host children's birthday parties. John's first known murder occurred on January 3rd, 1972. A uh, young boy by the name of Tim McCoy was traveling from Michigan to Nebraska to visit family and when he stopped at a bus station in Chicago, the same bus station I talked about earlier. John was able to lure him away from the bus stop 
and he took Tim on a sightseeing tour around Chicago and eventually convinced him to stay the night at his house. In the morning, John woke up to Tim standing in his doorway with a knife, and it startled him out of bed. When Tim realized that, that he had startled John, he held his hands up kind of as a way to surrender, um, and still holding the knife, John tried to disarm him and accidentally cut himself, and that kind of set him off. So he knocked Tim to the ground and actually stabbed him repeatedly. He then walked into the kitchen to clean the knife off, and he found an uncut slab of bacon on the kitchen table, and and it was at that point that he realized that Tim was just trying to make him breakfast, and he was going to wake John up to tell him it would be ready soon. So John buried him under the house, and um, while he was stabbing Tim, he apparently experienced an orgasm like he had never experienced before, and that was when he associated that thrill that sexual experience with murder, much like we talked about with Andre Chikatilo. His second murder occurred in 1974, though the victim was never identified. He later admitted to it after his arrest. Uh, He said that he had to hide the body in his closet before he could bury him, but uh, fluids leaked from the victim's mouth onto the carpet, and from that point forward, John would always shove some sort of cloth into the victim's mouth, whether it be their own underwear or a rag or, or just some sort of fabric that would prevent those fluids from, from leaking out onto the floor. On July 31st, 1975, John killed John Berkovich. He saw him at an intersection near his home and flagged him down. He, Berkovich told John that he needed to talk to him, likely to settle the issue of back pay because Berkovich had previously worked for John. John didn't pay him right. And so Berkovich flagged him down and said, hey, uh, I want to talk to you about getting paid. So John convinced him to come back to their house or back to his house so they could talk about it. And I guess they figured out this issue of the back pay and uh, the conversation became more civil. And at some point, John actually convinced Berkovich to put these handcuffs on him behind his back. John then strangled Berkovich and after he died, he buried him under the concrete in the garage floor. John committed most of his murders over the next several years after his divorce. Uh, he had a total of 33 victims, and they all kind of fell along the same lines as these previous victims that I've explained to you. He would trick them into putting handcuffs on, and then he would either strangle them or stab them or otherwise asphyxiate them. Most of the victims were buried in the cross space underneath his home, Um, He eventually ran out of crawl space to bury these bodies in, and so he started to dump them in the Des Plaines River off of the I-55 bridge just outside of Chicago. On December 11, 1978, John visited the Nissan Pharmacy to discuss remodeling with the owner. John, when he walked in, um, a, a young employee of the pharmacy by the name of Robert Peist caught his eye, so he, when he was discussing this remodel, With the owner of the pharmacy, he intentionally loudly mentioned that he liked to hire teenage laborers for $5 an hour because he knew that was way more than Peist was making working at the pharmacy. And on his way out, he basically told Peist, hey, if you want to work for me, let me know. And And then he left. Well, he came back to the pharmacy later that night as Robert was leaving and his mother was there. Robert's mother was there to pick him up, but Robert told his mom, hey... I'll be home soon. I'm going to go talk to this guy about a job. So Robert met with John about the construction job. And, of course, John convinced him to go back to his house. 
and he duped Robert into putting on a pair of handcuffs. When Robert was restrained, John placed a tourniquet around his neck and raped him um, and even stopped in the middle of this crime to answer a phone from a business associate, a phone call from a business associate, and then went back to it and eventually killed Peist. Peist's family followed a missing person report the next day when he didn't come home, and the pharmacy owner told police that Robert was likely going to see John Gacy about a job, a construction job, before he went missing. The investigating officer undercovered John's past as far as the sodomy charge, the battery charge, and he started to take a much harder look at it. So police decided to go to John's house and question him. He denied ever having seen Robert outside of the pharmacy, and he told them that he would in fact come to the police de department later to answer questions. He ended up showing up at the police department at 3.20 in the morning, covered in mud, and he said that he had been in an accident. They later found out that after the police left his house, he went and got Robert's body and dumped it into the river and then got into an accident on his way to the police department. So he really did get into an accident, and that's why he was covered in mud. Uh, but he had dropped the body off on the way. John completed a written statement about his interaction with Robert for the police, and the police ended up getting a search warrant for John's home, thinking that he might be holding Robert against his will inside the home. Uh, they didn't find Robert at the house, but they did find a bunch of interesting items. They found a, a starter pistol, a hypodermic needle, handcuffs, pornography, books on homosexuality, bottles of Valium and atropine, and several driver's licenses were, were, uh, belonging to different men and several pairs of, of underwear that obviously wouldn't fit John. They found a receipt from the pharmacy that, that Robert worked at in the trash can next to a three-foot-long piece of nylon rope. Police then began uh, a thorough investigation and put a 24-hour-a-day surveillance on John. And as their investigation started turning over more and more clues, John seemed to not be worried um, in the least bit about his uh, new friends that he had picked up in the investigation team. And he even invited the surveillance teams um, to have drinks with them and have dinner with them. He invited the detectives that were working his case uh, to dinner one day after they searched his car. He spoke about many things during this dinner, including his business ventures. Uh, he even brought up being a clown, and he, he made the comment to the detectives, you know, clowns can get away with murder. John filed a civil suit against the police department claiming that they were harassing him, and he filed the lawsuit as they were drawing up their second search warrant. John's court hearing for the civil lawsuit was on December 22nd, and later that afternoon, after the, the court hearing, uh, he again invited the surveillance detectives inside of his home. They entered, his they entered his house, and while one detective was kind of distracting John, the other one faked having to go to the bathroom so that he could try to get a serial number off of a television that was believed to have been stolen from one of the victims. While, he was, while the detective was standing underneath a heat vent, he noticed the odor of what he thought was a, a decomposing body. Police had also talked to witnesses in the neighborhood who said John um, ha had people spreading lime consistently underneath the house. Back up a couple days on the evening of December 20th, 1977, John went to a scheduled meeting at his lawyer's office and he asked for an alcoholic drink. John started drinking heavily and then he started talking about all of his victims. He started by uh, pointing at a picture of Robert Pice that was on the desk of his lawyer and he said, that boy right there, He's dead. He's in the bottom of the river. 
He went on to confess to 30 different murders. He would spend the next several hours driving around town saying goodbye to people that he knew, people that he loved. Uh, He visited one of his friends and began weeping. And when the friend asked him what was up, he said, "I've, I've been a bad boy. I killed 30 people, give or take a few. He stopped at a gas station to fill up his car and gave uh, the gas station attendant a bag of weed, telling him, the end is near for me, these guys are going to kill me. The gas station attendant immediately turned the dope over to the surveillance team, and detectives became worried that John was going to try to kill himself, um, especially when he visited his father's grave, so they had him arrested on drug distribution charges. Uh, The second search warrant was signed for... For John's house on December 21st and John uh, you know they told him that they intended on searching his crawl space for the body of Peist and at that point um, John knew the gig was up and he told him that Peist wasn't in the crawl space but he did admit to killing a man in self-defense and he told him that the body was buried underneath the garage floor when detectives showed up to execute the warrant they found that John had unplugged a sump pump that he had installed in the crawl space that was meant to keep standing water um, out from underneath the house, so they plugged it back in and emptied it out, and they started digging, and um, they quickly realized the scale of how many people he had murdered as they uncovered four bodies almost right away. John was later told about the discovery of the bodies, and he told detectives that he was ready to clear the air, as he put it, and he went on to confess to about 30 murders. He told investigators that since he had filled up his crawl space with bodies, he was only months away from filling the entire crawl space up with concrete. He was going to cover all the bodies with concrete. Um, In all, the forensic investigators found 27 bodies buried underneath John's house, and most of them had uh, a piece of cloth or or a piece of clothing in their mouth. Because remember, he had the one victim who who leaked fluid through his mouth, so he began uh, shoving some sort of fabric or cloth inside his victim's mouth so that didn't happen again. After they recovered all the bodies and all the evidence from the home, it sat empty for a while and it was eventually demolished in 1979. John's trial began on February 6, 1980. Uh, Predictably, the defense argued that he was insane. On March 12th, both sides concluded uh, two days of closing arguments. The jury deliberated for less than two hours before hammering out a guilty penalty on all 33 murder charges. He also received the death penalty for each murder he committed, and his execution was set for June of that same year. But of course, he appealed appealed his conviction and sentencing. Um, Both appeals went all the way to the United States Supreme Court, and both were upheld, and eventually his execution was scheduled for May 10th of 1994. During his execution, the drugs that they were using to put John down actually ended up like coagulating and solidifying, and the tube that delivered him through the veins of John. Uh, so he was only, I guess, technically partially executed, and they had to switch out um, the equipment that they used for the execution, and all in all, it took took 18 minutes for him to die. According to those who witnessed his execution, when he asked if he had any last words, he simply replied, kiss my ass. His time of death was 12.58 on May 10th, 1994. So that's John Wayne Gacy. Like I said, I couldn't find any information on his next of kin, um, not even his ex-wife's, so uh, I don't have any updates on them to give you. Just a really sick dude. Um, You know, he he would earn the trust of these young men and then 
many of his victims he would trick into putting on a pair of handcuffs. He would basically tell them, hey, these are a pair of trick handcuffs. See if you know how to get out of them. They'd put them on, and then he would kill his victims. And so, um, sick dude, killer clown. It's John Wayne Gacy Jr. This world is uh, definitely a better place without him. So, so yeah, that's all I got on that. Uh, quick note, if you... If you guys are scheduled for your COVID vaccinations, um, as a first responder, I was in Group 1A or A1 or however they classify them. And um, I'll give you an update next week on how I'm feeling, but I got my second shot today. I can tell you after the first shot, I didn't have any side effects as far as like feeling sick or tired or anything like that. Uh, my arm was extremely sore. In fact, that was a common complaint amongst all the people that that I was with who got the exam or the exam who got the vaccination at the same time that I did. But I was doing a little bit of research and read in a couple different places that the, the second round of vaccinations does have uh, a little bit heavier side effect as far as feeling ill, um, you know, running temperatures, not being able to sleep because of the steroid, that kind of stuff. I just got the, the, the second shot this morning. Um, I can tell you, I didn't even feel it. Uh, the nurse told me big poke and then she was putting a bandaid on. I had to ask her if she actually gave me the shot. She in fact did. Um, but so far so good. I don't even have any soreness yet, but it's only a couple hours after the fact. So, um, I'll let you know next week if you're in line to get your shot, what to expect, but so far so good. Anyways, that's all I got. I hope you have enjoyed, uh, this episode. I should be back next week, but until then be safe. God bless you and God bless America. Oh,